All right, friends. Well, we've got our Bibles, and we're going to open them up to Galatians chapter 2, which is where we're going to be studying today. I love my wife. I just want to say that this morning as she is, as she is away on the women's retreat, and I had the wonderful uh, honor and task of getting my six kids ready for church today. I Paul's in the same boat as me. We can both... Praise the Lord for such wonderful wives that do a great job of doing this every week, of wrangling the children and getting them here. And for every mom who puts the effort out to bring their family to church and every dad who contributes to that as well, thank you for that. Our kids need to be here. They need to be with us. They need to be understanding the things that we're understanding of of Christ. And they're never too young. You know, even just being around the love that is here for an infant That's an impression that is being made upon their little hearts. Everything that they see and everything that they absorb um, with their senses is making an impression on what they think about the world around them. And so to be a part of this church family and to have our families involved with that is so critical um, to our strength and discipleship. And so thank you for for being here and for uh, going through the gauntlet. I know sometimes it's hard to get everyone ready and it's hard to coordinate, uh, but we, we appreciate spending this time together with you as we grow in grace in God's Word. So my brother-in-law lives in Southern California. He's got a, a nice little house in a wonderful neighborhood. And as time and money permits, he has, over the years, made a systematic effort to kind of work through the things that are wrong with that house, to improve the things that could be better in the house. And he's a very handy guy, but he can't do everything. So a few years back, um, he noticed that the roof was leaking a little bit after some storms, and he decided that once it dried up, he was going to be proactive. He was going to get that roof taken off, and he was going to uh, pay somebody to redo the whole thing so that it wouldn't cause rot in the rafters, and he wouldn't have a bigger problem down the road. Uh, Solid plan, but he made one big mistake. He found a contractor to do the work, and then he paid him for the entire job up front. Now, what's wrong with that, right? That's... I like to pay for things up front if I can. I like to be up for, forward with things and, and just get that out of the way. But when you've got a big job like this, it's going to take time and effort and resources. When you pay a contractor up front, they no longer have any motivation to finish that job in a timely manner. There are other jobs they are trying to line up that they could be putting their efforts to that could bring more money into their business. And so working on your job when your cash is already in their bank account uh, is not a financially smart thing for them to do. And so uh, the contractor is likely to spend a lot less time taking care of your issue and a lot more time seeking out new paydays. Secondly, he lacks incentive to do it well. There's no reward of a full paycheck at the end of the job if he's already got the whole thing in full. And so the the company might cut corners, they might skimp to shave costs because every dime that they didn't spend making your job done right is another dime that they get to keep in their pocket when it's all said and done. So in my brother-in-law's case, the company stripped off the roof and then literally spent all the money that he he had paid to have the job done. So they had nothing left to buy the materials and finish the contract. They stopped answering his calls, they stopped returning his emails, Eventually, we find out that this owner did this to several clients, and then he skipped town, leaving a bunch of people high and dry, or whatever the opposite of that is, low and wet, I think, when you don't have a roof on your house. So that's not a kind of situation you want to get yourself into. 
But let me ask you this this morning. Does Jesus make a similar mistake by granting us the free gift of grace and forgiveness, washing us clean of our sins, and promising us a a place in heaven far before we live out the rest of our lives obediently to Him? That is a question that has popped into the minds of many who are contemplating what Christianity really means. And so, as we open our Scripture together, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to address that very controversy this morning in chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. As the apostle builds his case against this work-dependent salvation that was beginning to infiltrate different parts of the church and was particularly having an impact on his friends in the churches of Galatia, he begins to ask a question that needs to be answered. Remember, this is a polemical a letter. That means that it is a letter arguing for truth, contending against false lies. Paul must bring those lies into the light, prove why they are wrong, and then prove why God's truth is truly what we can trust. And so he presents this hypothetical crisis. What might come if his version of the gospel, the gospel that he received from Jesus Christ, is truly the real gospel? Paul has made it very clear that man's efforts to keep the law of Moses cannot save a man, right? We are saved by grace through faith. Salvation is a gift that God freely gives to all who believe. So let's say that we die to the law, we put that behind us, we trust in the righteousness of Christ rather than in our own righteousness. But because keeping the law is no longer the basis of our relationship with God, Isn't there an acute risk that our behavior is then going to begin to drift away from the moral standards of that law that we've died to? Won't our sinful hearts inevitably cause us to become abject sinners who do what we want to do without fear of judgment or punishment since we now have this invincible grace that ever washes us, ever justifies us, ever absolves us of guilt and shame? So to sum it up in one sentence, if the law does not justify, which we learned last week, are we justified in living lawlessly? This is a legitimate question, right? And there is much at stake in the answer. Social order is in stake. Because friends, God's law provides a structure that has a preserving effect on society. Even if man does not keep God's law perfectly, the presence of the law 
and the threat of consequence if we do not follow the law, if we ignore the rules and precepts of God, that does have a preserving effect on society, doesn't it? There's a good chance if your car hasn't been stolen while you warm it up in the morning in front of your house, it's because somebody saw that car idling and thought, man, if I take that, God's not going to be happy with me. Unless you're the Webbs, and then every single time you've warmed your car up, it's been stolen. Our friend Larry Webb and his family have had several cars stolen out in front of their house. But how many times could somebody do something bad, but they're worried someone's going to see them, and there's going to be a consequence, or God is going to be upset with them. God's law, even if we don't follow it perfectly, does have a guarding effect on the society that we live in. People are less likely to lie and cheat and steal if they fear the Lord, and if they imagine that there could be an imminent judgment for ignoring what God says is good and holy. If we have an ever-expanding group of people, the church, who no longer need to take their morality that seriously because it's not going to put them into hell, then consider the negative impact that might have on a world that we live in. Does justification by grace instead of by works open up a Pandora's box of reckless people living however they want to live while believing that they are saved? But even more importantly than the social order of the world that we live in, there's something greater at stake. The good name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, is indeed at stake here. As a Christian, you represent the name of Christ. You even bear that name in your title. Christ represents the Father, doesn't He? And what you do, whether you intend to do it or not, reflects back on the one whom you represent. So in the same way that the representatives who came from Antioch last week in the, in the scripture we read, remember there was a group from Antioch, and they came preaching this hybrid works plus grace salvation. That reflected poorly back on James, who was one of the elders in Jerusalem, made people question what he was doing there. So too would a church that practices lawlessness and sin reflect poorly on the name of Jesus Christ who we represent. And so Paul in verse 17 asks the very important question, is Jesus a servant of sin? That word for servant there is diakonoin, which is the word for servant or minister even of sin. Is he bringing about sin in our lives? Is he facilitating our lawlessness by giving us this free pass, this get out of hell free card that keeps us from ever getting any punishes for the sins that we're going through? If the answer to that question is yes, then essentially Jesus would be aiding and abetting the wickedness of people. Lawless behavior would be fueled by this grace that he is giving to us by absolving us of our guilt from all the sinful things that we've done. So Paul has got to provide an explanation for all this. He anticipates this being a, a question in people's minds. If grace is free, what keeps a man from taking advantage of that free grace at the expense of God's good name? On Friday, May 15th, 2015, Zokar Sarnav was sentenced to death for the part that he played in the horrific Boston Marathon bombings that most of us can vividly remember from a few years back. Zokar and his brother Tamerlin had planted homemade bombs, pressure cookers full of shrapnel and BBs and gunpowder near the finish line of that marathon's route where the crowds would be the most dense. 
When they exploded 12 seconds apart from each other, three people lost their lives, and several hundred were severely wounded, a number of whom lost their limbs in that attack. Most people are familiar with this story. It shocked the nation, but some might not recall that one month after Zokar was sentenced, three of his friends were sentenced to spend time in prison as well. They had not played a direct part in the bombing itself. They hadn't intended it for, for it to happen. But after hearing the news and seeing the blurry security images, they identified that it was probably their friend who was guilty or being sought after. And so these men that, that knew the assailants, their names were Diaz Karibarayev, Azamat Tazigakov, and Robel Filipos, they went to his room, his dorm room. They removed a backpack containing materials that were used to make bombs, and they took a laptop computer and tried to dispose of many of those items. So when interviewed by police later, these three friends lied about the, taking those items. They lied about knowing anything about the connection between this man and, and his religious radical ideas. And so those three men who did not commit a crime of terrorism were not technically guilty of the bombing itself, but their actions aided and abetted the bombers to escape the authorities for a time. They were guilty as well. So Paul wants to make it very clear that Jesus is not guilty by association with his church. He does not create a scenario whereby believers in Jesus Christ can just roam around doing whatever they want and saying, don't worry about it, I'm, I'm forgiven because God loves me. My sins don't really matter. That's what Paul means when he asks, is Jesus a servant of sin? Is he facilitating the iniquity of others by making a free pass for those who have broken God's law? His answer is emphatic and unwavering. Certainly not. Absolutely, Jesus cannot be guilty of such an error. You're not going to find a single biblical writer who contends more passionately for the purity of Jesus Christ than Paul the Apostle. He was adamant that Christ was a pure and a holy man, a man who was guilty of no sin, whether directly or indirectly. Paul understood that the very law of Moses reflects the nature of God himself. Those laws were given because they reflect who God is, what he loves, and how he acts. So God is not opposed to the law, and neither is Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and to rid the world from it as if it was some kind of cancer or evil. He came to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, make himself eligible to die on the cross for our sins as the only perfect man who's ever walked the world. Jesus died so that we could live according to the law through grace. And so in the strongest language possible, Paul fiercely defends the gospel of Jesus Christ, declaring that Christ did not legitimize man's rebellion by granting us free pardon. In order to explain why that cannot be so, Paul begins to describe the reality of what it means to be justified by faith. And he uses his own life as an example of this reality of radical transformation. He says in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There is a great transformation in that one sentence. 
When someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's not that they just change their mind about something. That's part of it. But there's more to that decision to follow after Jesus. A legitimate transformation occurs in them. And the reality of this transformation is so extreme that Paul describes it as a kind of death. That he dies to the old self he used to be the moment he sees his great need for Christ and receives the grace that Jesus has to give. You might notice the wording here. It's very specific. Paul is the one who died here, not the law itself. The law is not dead. The law still serves a purpose. It still has a place in the life of one who believes in Christ. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But Paul describes himself as having died to that law. Paul's not rejecting the law. He's coming terms to the fact that the law is rejecting him. The law views the holiness of Paul, sees everything he has to give, and says, nope, not good enough. See, as a Pharisee, Paul had originally convinced himself that he was justified because of his good works. We have seen in chapter 1 of this Galatian letter how Paul, in telling his background, described himself as advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's indicating here that when it came to Pharisees and those who kept the law, he did it better than just about anyone. But what good did it do him? He was very pleased with his good works, with his obedience to the law, and he believed that God was pleased with him too for a time. But then the Son of God interrupted his life. Jesus Christ appeared to him and dramatically changed Paul's perspective on his own good works. He revealed to him that his works were in no way sufficient to earn eternal life and a relationship with God other than judgment. And so all his attempts at righteousness were fighting against the grace that Jesus was determined to give him. Verse 19 says that Paul then died through the law. That means that the law itself condemned him to death as an imperfect sinner who could not keep that law with perfection. Paul speaks more to this in another letter, in the letter to the Romans. And so I'd like to read to you Romans chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. There's a lot of parallels, in fact, between the Romans letter and the Galatian letter that we're studying over this past few months. Romans chapter 7, verse 9 through 11 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. What he means by that is that man in his ignorance can live as though he's perfectly fine until God reveals that there are expectations on man, that there is a law by which man must live. When he saw that law, he realized he fell short of it. Jesus made that clear to him. In verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, And through it, killed me. So he thought this law was going to be his salvation until he realized that he could not keep it perfectly, that it was was there to alert him of his need for God to intervene in his life. So in a sense, Jesus pointed to all the fervent religious activity of Paul before that he was saved, and he declared it to be not good enough. It all fell short, and because the law could not provide life and salvation for Paul, Paul turned away from that idea 
that redemption was something that he could earn. He died to the law as a potential means of salvation. The reformer John Calvin describes that death to the law like this. He says, to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. To turn away and die from the law means that we no longer depend on that as our road to heaven because that bridge will never reach to where we need to go. Paul's not the only one who had to die to the law. When each one of us says yes to Jesus Christ, when we receive the grace that he has to give, we too forsake any strategy of making our own way to heaven by our own good deeds. We come to terms with the fact that if we're to be saved, that it is by God's hand alone and not by the good works that we can muster up through our own will. Paul is going to go on to make it very clear here in Galatians 2.20 that this death that he understands himself to have died is connected in a powerful way to Christ's death upon the cross. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is that mystic, sweet communion that Paul was praying about earlier. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Seeing his desperate need to be justified and knowing that all of the work that he could ever muster would never accomplish that justification, Paul sees that his only hope is to be joined to Christ in faith, even though that means that he would be joined to Jesus in his death and his crucifixion. Being joined with him means that the life Paul used to live, that life of living apart from God's authority, that life lived independently from his rule and his reign, the life of trying to be true to himself rather than trying to be true to the Lord God, that life by necessity had to come to an end. And I want us to see here the very personal declaration in verse 20, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, declares Paul. Paul doesn't view this magnificent truth as some abstract religious idea that's just way out there that you read in a book somewhere or you hear in a class. He sees clearly the personal impact this is making on him. And it's making that impact every day of his life since he has given himself to Christ. Christian, in imagining Jesus dying on the cross for us, it is appropriate for each of us who believe to picture ourselves up on that cross and to think about the fact that we are the ones who truly deserve to experience that anguish and that shame. We are the ones who offended the Lord God, not Christ. To come to grips that it would have been right for God to put us to death for the things that we did in rebellion to His kingdom helps us to see our life now in a new perspective. With grateful hearts, we can now rejoice that Jesus loved us enough that He would personally take our punishment, that He would insert Himself into the picture 
and suffer and die on our behalf so that that life of sin that was running far away from God would be put to an end and a new life literally can begin. Seeing that powerful reality of Jesus' substitutionary atonement for us, that He literally died in our place, though He was completely guilt-free, should have a jarring effect on our outlook on life from the moment we put our faith in Him. Here is how Paul describes it in a different letter. In the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, he's bouncing back to this idea of the newness we have in Christ once we put our faith in Him. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. See the connection that we have in Christ's crucifixion? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection found from the dead. Jesus died on the cross to fulfill the law. Paul is then crucified with Christ. So Paul died to the law through the death of Jesus, which fulfilled the requirements of that law. It is not hanging over his head any longer as this unattainable goal that he must shoot for. Trusting Christ means surrendering your whole life to him. It means giving up your sinful nature. You die to your selfishness because of that choice. You don't receive Christ and then just simply add that as a small blessing to your current sinfulness and then go on living like you've always lived. You are now in Christ as a believer. The law, which no longer saves you, is now something that you can live out by grace, not under the law, but within Christ. Consider this. If you believe that you have given your life to Jesus Christ, but there is no real difference between the person you are today and the person you were before you prayed that prayer or walked that aisle, you did not give your life to Christ. I say that in love to you because I sincerely desire that every man, woman, child give their life to Christ. And it is great trouble to my heart to know that many walk this earth thinking that they have done that when in reality there has been no real transformation in them. Christ calls us to come and die with Him on the cross that our old life of sin would be laid to rest and a transformation that only He could bring about might be realized in our lives. If you do not pray more earnestly than you did before you gave your life to Christ, if you don't think about the Son of God more, if you don't hate sin with a greater passion, if you don't repent more freely because of the salvation you've experienced, if you don't desire to serve others and to love others, 
If you don't have a greater passion for the Word of God, His special revelation to you, if you don't feel compelled to forgive others, then you need to get back to the cross and examine more honestly what Jesus did for you. Not just so that you could have a free license to sin and live however you want to live, but so that you might be freed from that slave master that used to rule your life. Doing those things I just mentioned doesn't make you what the scripture calls a good tree, but they are the good fruit that comes from being a good tree, from being a seed that received the gospel and and, and grew into a mature plant that grew roots and became strong and then began to bear the good fruits of righteousness as Christ has transformed you and begin to move you away from that life of sinfulness into a life of obedience and wonderful beauty, living out the truths of God's law. One who trusts in Jesus Christ is one being transformed. That is a non-negotiable. Being freed from the law, friends, does not justify lawless living. There is no reason to fear that this free grace will lead believers to disrespect the law and to live in open rebellion to it, a person who's been crucified with Christ is much more likely now to live according to the moral law than someone who's not crucified with Christ and is attempting to fulfill it on their own inadequate power to their own inadequate glory. If there is a sin, friend, that persists in you, if you are battling that sin, You're not under the law anymore. So God is not saying, defeat that sin and I will love you. He is saying, son, daughter, that sin that you're battling against is already defeated in me. Trust in me and let me work it out of your life. Let me bring that transformation that I have have planned for you from the beginning. I don't have to sin like this anymore as a believer. And as I think about those words from Galatians 2.20, that would be a wonderful verse, friends, to be praying every day this week. Just be thinking through that verse and wondering about the fact that I am now crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Remember that when you're experiencing failure, when you're struggling against your temptations. It's not I who live anymore, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in Him who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't have to sin like this anymore. I've been crucified with Christ and he dwells in my heart. I don't live by those old patterns. They have been put to death. I live by faith in Jesus Christ. And friend, when we are baptized by immersion in water, that is the picture we are showing. We're showing a person buried, the old life put to rest in the ground and then risen again in one motion so that We can see that person as a new creation in Christ. That faith that they have in Jesus Christ is justified because Jesus died for them. And that old sinful life died with him. We can be dead to our sin, friends. This reality of being crucified with Christ has made it clear to Paul, as we conclude here, that there are two things he must not do. And in verses 17 through 21, there are two responses he has to this great transformation as he attempts to explain to others why they have no reason to concern about this lawless church running through the world. He also wants to make sure that he sees there are two things he cannot do in light of this grace. First of all, Paul must not rebuild again this mindset of working to be saved. He cannot allow himself to fall back into that pattern of thinking. 
He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, in verse 18, I prove myself to be a transgressor. We've come to see that the thing that Paul has torn down, or perhaps even more accurately, that Jesus, what Jesus Christ has torn down in his life for him, is this idea that by following the law, he could be justified before God. He had fleshed that notion out of his mind, the cross had set him free from it, and he must resist the temptation to crawl back into that way of life. If he were to let that notion be rebuilt, if he were to allow himself to drift into living like Peter did, remember when he began to, to reject sharing the table with the Gentile Christians, he began to drift back into the law and rebuild it in his mind. These Judaizers who were trying to influence Galatia were attempting to get those men to do just that, to rebuild the law after Christ had set them free from it. If he were to let the false doctrine of works salvation be rebuilt, he would truly prove himself to be a transgressor. He would be turning his back on the very good gospel <clears throat> that Jesus Christ had personally revealed to him. So friends, we've got to guard ourselves in the same way. We've got to guard ourselves from letting any teacher or any philosopher or any man with a pulpit or a blog persuade us that Christ's grace is anything but a free, magnificent gift. Remember, Paul's opponents were actually trying to argue for their position from Scripture. They sounded like God-fearing men. They were arguing from common sense and logic, but they were arguing from a perspective that had not yet truly died to the self. They were overlooking the very truth that makes Christianity unique from every other proposed view of redemption. And you'll have no shortage, if you want to go out and study the systems of salvation in the world, all the different ways that man has manufactured in order to make themselves right or good or to get them a way to heaven, they all involve what man can do. They all circle back around to what we may accomplish or discover with our strength, our intellect, our obedience. And all of them fall short. So why would we leave this beautiful grace that God has given to us in order to fall back into that pattern when God has said to us clearly, the thing that saves you is not you. It's me. So guard yourself from those false teachers. Guard yourself from letting your pride distract you back into a mindset that measures God's love for you by the degree to which you have obeyed Him. We all like a pat on the back. We all love accolades and kudos. And so it is part of our sin nature to be drawn like a moth to a flame to that false kind of religion where there's a chance, there's a possibility that we might exalt ourselves by doing it well. Have you ever experienced that kind of digression from grace? Where you start to think in your mind quietly, if only I was like Susie or Bob, if only I could conquer this particular sin in my life, I just need to read more, I just need to witness to five more people, I just need to do this or that or those things. And before you know it, you're unsatisfied again because you've taken your eyes off of what Jesus Christ did for you and you're putting it back on the faulty attempts that you have made to make Him love you when He already does. The second thing that Paul must be careful that he does not do in light of this wonderful transformation, Paul must not undo the power of the gospel by adding anything to it. 
He says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What he's saying here is, if it was at all possible for you and I to obtain salvation and righteousness from the works of the law, then we would have to begin to look at God the Father in a whole new way. If the cross is not the one and only means to our redemption, then that would make God the cruelest of all fathers. Because that would mean that God sent His only begotten Son to suffer and to die for no good reason. If the law could save us, why would the Father make Jesus suffer like He did? That would be cruel and unusual punishment. The only reason God was willing to do that, to send the Son, is because a great victory was going to be won, and the only way that it could be done was through a proper atoning sacrifice. And the only one qualified to do that was Jesus Christ. Whatever role the law now plays in our lives, and we will take time to discuss the role the law plays now that we are believers in faith and not under the law, it is still not a saving role. The law is not dead, but it still has no power to justify the wicked. If we were to allow that thought to infect the church, this idea that there is an alternate way, or that we have to take two paths to get to salvation, the cross, and also our good works, then we would be allowing a paralyzing cancer to enter into the walls of the church, a tumor that slowly overtakes the healthy organ that it is infecting and envelops it, starving it from important blood flow, cutting it off from accomplishing its proper function until the tissue is completely consumed and shut down. We've got to guard against this kind of hybrid salvation. And so, friends, Paul's defense of the gospel here is absolutely necessary. He must oppose these men who teach that hybrid synergistic gospel, no matter how well-meaning they may appear on the surface. Paul himself is not a perfect man. He makes mistakes just as every one of us does, but he is not a transgressor. He is not one who fragrantly sins and then just says, oh, it's covered, God has paid for that on the cross, so I guess there's no consequence. He does not see the free grace of Jesus as license to do things that dishonor the Lord, and neither do true followers of Jesus Christ. If we have died to the law, my friends, we have done so through the death of Jesus Christ. The transformation that has brought into our lives has now unified us with Him, and the life that we now live in the flesh is to be a life of honor to the one that we represent. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, in a very meaningful way, Lord, we want you to use this scripture to open our eyes even wider to the things that we used to be blinded to. God, may your amazing grace show us the great extent that you want to change us through Christ. We don't come to this cross because we want a ticket out of punishment. We come to this cross because you have written a new law upon our hearts. You have softened us, though we were calloused. You have made us humble, though we were proud. And so a transformed church like this will make its mistakes, God, but we are so very grateful. 
that we can be those who live according to the true principles of Scripture. Not because we have the strength to do it when others do not, but because you have the strength to make it happen in us. God, I pray that we would consider that you loved us and that is why you died for us personally, Lord. Each one of us has experienced a sacrifice that we could never repay. And so we don't come here to repay it to you, Lord God. We come here to rejoice in it. Help us to live lives that prove to the world that we are now a people of love so that those who gaze upon your church will see a more clear picture of the kind of, kind of truth that you gave to this world by living perfectly for us and help them to see that it is not because we are better people, it's because you are the only Savior. We love you and thank you for all these things. In your holy name, Jesus, amen.